0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Monday, February 26, 2018, starting at 9.58 a.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 146th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the astrological forecast for March of 2018. Uh, hey, guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris.
1: Hey, Chris. Hey, Austin.
0: Hey, Kelly. Hey, it's been a whole month since I saw you guys uh, last, and I know both of you have been, have been up to a lot. Kelly, you didn't go very far because we did two episodes together already this month, and I think caught up a bunch of our listeners who are missing you uh, during our our January episodes.
1: Yes, we did. We definitely made up for missing out on January for sure. Yeah, I've just been home. I've been teaching, seeing clients and just kind of getting settled for the year, not uh, gallivanting around the globe on boats like Austin, which sounds very fun.
0: Right. Austin, you've been on vacation this past couple of weeks, right?
2: Yeah, for about a week and a half now. And I'm actually still on vacation technically although this is sort of half work half vacation right so you
0: went on a like a cruise or something
2: i did i went on a carnival cruise and uh, i was on a boat for a week as i was telling kelly earlier um i got on the i got on the cruise the day before the sun entered pisces and so the first day that i woke up on a giant boat in the middle of the caribbean the sun entered pisces so it was um <laughs> it was all very appropriate. I was, uh, cer- It was certainly the right time to enjoy aquatic life. Brilliant. That sounds like a good way
0: to uh, act in accordance with the transits at the time. And that was partially like an election, partially convenience, right? Yep. 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 Cool. All right. All right. And um, so, why don't we get into things? So, let's see. Things to mention or like news and announcements. Kelly, you just did your Progressed Venus webinar, right?
1: I did. We just recorded that last weekend. So the video recording is now available. And I was really happy with it, actually, because we got to touch on, I felt like I was able to make it a really complete presentation. I did a very basic intro about how to figure out where your progressed Venus is at the start. And then one of the examples I used towards the end of the webinar was very fancy, like progressed to progressed aspects just to show how involved you can get with that stuff if you want. So yeah, so that'll be a great webinar, you know, whether you're new to progressions or you've been using it for a while. So that's now available just on my website.
0: Awesome. Brilliant. Yeah. Everybody seems to have really liked our secondary progressions episode and I'm glad we got a chance to do that because I can't believe I hadn't done an episode on that topic so far.
1: Yeah. It seems to have filled a gap and we've had some good comments and feedback coming through. So yeah, thanks for having me for that. It was a lot of fun to do.
0: Yeah, definitely. And Austin, you're you're a fan of? Are you a fan of secondary progressions? I use them.
1: Um, <laughs> you're not if a I big w- fan, though, are you?
2: If I was as good as Kelly is with them, I would probably use them a lot more. Very, Aww. very
0: nice. Very nice. No,
2: I mean, no, li- literally, like that's 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 a truth. It actually came up. I did. Um, I do a monthly. Uh, I do a monthly live session with my upper tier Patreon patrons. And a bunch of people were asking me about secondary progressions because they'd heard the podcast. Hmm. And um, you know, I can do a little bit with it and I help some people, you know, figure out what a station in the progress chart meant. But I was like, really, you should just um get it from Kelly. Thank you. It's
1: It's funny, like, I guess everybody has those little techniques that they just get connected to very early in their journey with astrology, because I find these timing techniques, the more you use them, the more intimately you become familiar with the nuances of what they have to offer.
2: Absolutely. Like
1: people, people ask me about releasing techniques and I'm like, you just got to go to Chris or, you know, I, I'm not there yet. I I can do a basic, this is kind of how it works. But if you want something really nuanced, I'm not the gal for you.
2: Yeah, I feel that way too. Somebody asked me, I actually, I was asked twice over the last two weeks, who's the best astrologer?
1: Oh my goodness.
2: And, um, you know, and I said, well, it doesn't really work like that. I was like, I have people that I will go to for specific excellences, right? I was like, yes. if I want to, if I want somebody's opinion about secondary progressions, I will talk to Kelly, right? You know, if I want someone's opinion about, Uh, Hellenistic astrology. I will talk to Chris, Um, you know, et cetera. And I named, I named, like, these are my specialists. You know, these are the people that I trust to be excellent in their corner of things as well as generally proficient. Right. I don't think there's, there's a, there's a best astrology. I was like, it's not like cage fighting. You can't just put a. you can't just pit us two by two uh, until a victor emerges.
0: Right. Well, that's really funny because I was seeing uh, some comedians talk about that recently, and they're talking about the difference between the comedy scene versus like boxing, where there's literally like a heavyweight champion who is recognized as like the best fighter at the time, or at least the one who's won all the fights up to that point. But when it comes to something like a timing technique, there's really that dual issue in astrology of, on the one hand. There's certain techniques that people become more interested in that really like speak to individual astrologers, and everybody gravitates towards or eventually finds that one technique or that set of techniques that really speak to them in terms of what they're trying to do with astrology. But then, on the other hand, the other issue is just that the field is so vast that no one astrologer can master every t- timing technique and every astrological technique or branch out there and so you end up needing to really decide at some point in your studies what you want to focus on and what you want to specialize in.
2: Yeah, and uh I would say that that's in part a decision and it's also in part just yielding to what you get the most out of and can see most deeply into. You know, like, like Kelly, you probably didn't sit down and say, I'm going to be a master of secondary progressions. No. You know, there are just certain things you're like, oh, that's really interesting, and you find yourself spending more time with it, and then maybe that's where the decision comes in. You're like, oh, I guess this is maybe this should be kind of my thing. Like with I was like with yeah. Deccans, I was interested in Deccans at 22, um, and I ended up writing a book about them 10 years later. But that was because I'd been interested in them like as soon as I discovered them. Yes. Oh, by the way, um, 36 faces is sold out.
1: Sold oh, out, yeah. sold out. No more print runs.
2: Um, the publishers sold out, uh, the, the publishers distributors sold out. I have like a, a box or maybe half a box, maybe like 10, 15 books, um, um, that I will sell most of back in my office, but they're, they're pretty much gone. All wow. editions. Wow. So that's, that's, that's fun.
0: Yeah, Congratulations. I actually a, Thank you. I had a student who contacted me recently looking for it and he said he couldn't find it anywhere. Did he get in touch with you?
2: I don't know. I had several uh, several people since the the, you know, the publisher and distributor ran out, a number of people have contacted me. So. Okay. And um I just got off a boat yesterday, so I have not caught up fully on emails. Yeah. Well, I
0: hope you do another print run or something at some point, because it was a great, great book and a great resource. So yeah, hopefully it stays in, in circulation, although it's good for us that have that super rare first edition then.
2: Yeah, yeah. You can maybe- um sell it and buy three of the second edition. <laughs>
0: right. That's not a bad idea. All
2: but right. Yeah, we're we're thinking about whether we're going to do a second print run or a second edition and when and all that. So that's, that's in process. I don't intend it to be out of print for terribly long. And yeah. then you have another possible publication
0: in the works as well at some point.
2: Yeah, I've got a couple small projects, but I really have been thinking for most of the last year about putting together um a mansions book um parallel in some ways to the the way that the that the Deccans book was constructed. A little, you know, maybe hundred pages of history and then a look at different systems and hmm, how should we say where, where they cohere and where they differ and also, you know, putting in some material about how to use them natally and electionally.
0: Brilliant. All right.
1: Fantastic.
2: Well, that would be great. Um
0: so that actually might be a good segue into the initial discussion topic, where usually I have like an initial discussion topic at the top of these forecast episodes to give us something to talk about that's not just the forecast that's going on in the astrological community or that we're thinking about and discussing recently um so the main thing that's happening right now in the astrological community that I've been noticing over the past few weeks, and I don't know how long how Closely, you guys have been following it, but there's been all this controversy regarding this uh, lecture that Glenn Perry gave in India, where there was this big conference in India. It was hosted by an Indian astrological organization. A bunch of Western astrologers went there and, in- and were invited to give talks and lectures, and they did, and it was a big success. But one of the main things that people heard about afterwards was this there was this big controversy because Glenn Perry. Went there and gave a talk basically just saying that the tropical zodiac is the one true zodiac and that the sidereal zodiac is false. And he was saying this to like a room full of Indian astrologers who all use the sidereal zodiac. Um, and the video or the lecture, the recording of this talk was actually just finally released last week. Have
2: you guys seen it or have you guys been following this at all? Do, do you care? um i th- I think I saw that that controversy was beginning just before I left, but I've been blessedly free of controversy for approximately a week and a half. I guess welcome back right to yeah. the, the latest drama <laughs> welcome
0: welcome back to land and here's a controversy in the astrological community or another one.
1: yeah, I missed it. I seem to really be late to the controversial party every time there's a controversy. Um, and then I'm like scrambling around, like, what's going on? What did I, I'm like the dazed kid in the corner reading a book or some trashy magazine. I don't want to sound intelligent because I'm usually just <laughs>
0: distracted. Right. Um,
1: but I'm intrigued because it, what you're describing, Chris, to someone to go to a country where a particular style of technique is practiced and basically just, you can totally have a difference of opinion. And I, Knowing this person's style, it maybe wasn't done delicately or with any sense of respect. It sounds like it was kind of disrespectful what you're talking about,
0: yeah, I mean, the gist of it was that it came off as totally disrespectful and kind of like tactless uh, once i find I finally actually watched the lecture the other day. I'd been putting it off for a while, and yeah, it was a pretty tactless lecture and and what's funny is like he also you know, I have major issues with him going back 10 years when he periodically writes these attacks on different forms of astrology. And 10 years ago, my introduction to him was he wrote this long, like 18 page long attack on traditional and Hellenistic astrology in the Isar Journal. And I read it, and it was just like littered with all of these errors and misconceptions and things that made it clear that he hadn't really studied. The thing that he was attacking very closely. He was just proceeding from a, p- a perspective of like, he found an approach that works from him, which is like modern psychological astrology, and he assumes that all of the other approaches are wrong. So then periodically, so he attacks traditional astrology, he attacked evolutionary astrology, now he's going after sidereal astrology, and they're always the, they're often these very poorly constructed arguments. So in this case, the issue was not so much making an argument, you know, since all three of us are, are tropical astrologers and we could all have our different arguments for whatever approach we prefer, but it's more a matter of like respect and, you know, going to a foreign country and how you respect uh the Western astrological community as well as the organization that he's a part of, which is ESAR and other things like that. And it it was not not very good. And that seems to be the general consensus because basically all the Western astrologers are the vast majority of western astrologers seem to be upset with this and it's causing that's where the controversy is coming from is he's gotten a lot of blowback from this this lecture it's,
1: it's... sorry austin you go no to... go ahead i was just going to say it it's almost what you were saying before austin about like trying to put you know two astrologers in the ring and it doesn't work like which side which zodiac is better or worse i mean you're almost showing a little bit of an an ignorance or a lack of knowledge around the philosophy behind each of the different Zodiacs and how they came about and why they were used, where and when they were used. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if this is something that we three all have in common or if you guys think differently, but it's not so much that there's a right and an only one way of astrology. There's different sort of astrologies that grew up in different cultures based on different philosophies at the time. And, not to say that there's a different astrology everywhere in the world, but it's, you. I don't know, I think you're almost coming from the wrong point to say this one works and that one doesn't.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, and so, I mean, I, I think this is part of where we're at culturally in general, but also specifically in astrology where um, we understand that we have to accept that there are ways of doing things that are different than ours. And that a good default response is to, um, you know, is to, uh, respect other ways of doing things. And yet not every single way of doing things is equally valid. Mm-hmm. And so, right. And this is part of the challenge of, um, um, how should we say, constantly globalizing culture. And so we do need to, you know, we can't say, like, you know, if, if I, um stick the zodiac, let's say instead of like a Ayanamsha or an offset between the two zodiacs, I just arbitrarily decide it's gonna be it's gonna be twelve, right? That's probably not going to work as well as the tropical or the sidereal, right? Um and so we could we could throw Austin's Ayanamsha of twelve out, right? And so there are things that we need to throw out. And so that's I don't know, I think that's just where we're at. We're sort of between like Respect, but not every not everything is a completely flat plane of quality. Some things do work better, and then that's true. And then some things, something in some cases, there's there's the matter of hammers versus saws, where you a saw and a hammer are both good tools, but if you try to hammer with a saw, it will work poorly, and if you try to saw with a hammer, it will also work poorly. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean that's one of the great. Sort of crises of our time in the astrological community is after the revival of all these older forms of astrology. Uh, you know, greater interest in in Indian astrology in the West, and basically this great diversity in the astrological tradition that's occurring today. This question of you know when is it just a matter of recognizing and being and appreciating and, and seeing the value in different approaches, different approaches that just might be different approaches that are still effective in different ways. And the common analogy that people usually invoke in those instances of astrology as a language, and that question that Rob Hand poses of, you know, which is more correct, French or German. And you realize then, if you phrase it like that, that that might be a false uh, sort of dichotomy to attempt to set it up that way if there can be equally valid but just different ways of communicating. So on the one hand, there's that as a scenario where there may be some instances where that really is the case. And I think all of us would agree in studying different traditions of astrology that each of them has unique and often useful things to say that you can learn from them that do validate to some extent the language analogy. But then on the other hand, you do sometimes have this issue with due to the diversity of techniques, sometimes individual astrologers do have to test and attempt to validate one technique or another or to compare one approach to another, whether it comes to zodiac issues, whether it comes to house division or other things like that, to the extent that astrology is like a technical discipline, it's okay to compare and contrast and in some instances to decide that you personally think that one approach is more effective for what you're trying to do than the other. Um, and I guess that's where it comes down to it is there there becomes this issue where I think I don't think most people took issue with the idea that Glenn liked the tropical zodiac, was endorsing it and wanted to promote it and explain why. It was just that the context and the way that he did it to the audience that he chose to do it to was was wildly inappropriate. And this question of if we do have this diversity of different astrological traditions and approaches, how do we approach dialogues and discussions and sometimes debates with each other? And do we do that you know respectfully and with a, a open sense of inquiry and genuine curiosity or do we just walk into a room and and you know give each other the middle finger and say i'm right and you're wrong deal with it and is that really productive in any real sense
1: i mean i don't think it's productive at all and it's divisive essentially it's it's not about you know as you're saying we can all we can disagree we can all have our own interpretation of the different techniques or what have you just as we were saying before even about things like progressions and releasing you know they're they're all great techniques but we're not all using all of them um I just think and for me personally and this is where I think I do have a, a lot of Venus in my chart is that I'm always like Oh, let's just, you can do it your way. That's okay. And we don't have to agree, but we could still go out for dinner together. But that's not the vibe that comes through in this sort of situation. It's like, you've either got to do it my way or get out of the room kind of thing. And I probably have more of an issue with that style of approach to disagreement than I do even necessarily about the substance, if that makes sense.
0: Right, right. So, uh, and I don't know, were you going to say anything else about this, Austin?
2: Oh, I guess um, one thing, because I've been. I've kind of uh, i've I've been spending a fair amount of time with Jyotish lately with Indian astrology. Yeah, and um, one of the uh, one way that I've been thinking about this difference lately um, is in part inspired by Jyotish is in that is um, when you're looking at a particular chart pattern, like a yoga, like a, a chart pattern that indicates a particular um quality of character or life right um when you're looking for one of these in addition to looking at the natal chart from the ascendant you would also look to see for some of them you would look to see whether it recurs by house from the perspective of the sun is rising or excuse me the sun treated as rising or the moon is rising and then you would look to see whether it recurs in certain uh in certain divisional charts and so you know the the idea is that although the uh the natal with the ascendant is sort of the master chart um you check and you check the opinion of a great number of other charts to confirm or deny um the pattern that you're seeing and so it seems now nat- i I've I sort of have come into a habit of just looking to see whether a particular chart pattern recurs in both the um in both the natal in the both the tropical and the sidereal natal as well as these others. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's
0: one of the the questions then is like, that's a solution and that's a possible solution to this issue. And it seems like different astrologers develop different solutions when presented with this problem and that, that sort of dialogue that develops around it.
2: Yeah, I, I, and I wouldn't um... Be so final as to call it uh, an answer or a solution. Um, it's more, um, it's, it's more sort of like a working approach at this point in time Mm. because I'm not willing to trash one so I can just do the other, you know, so I can just do one and then trash the other. And so that's just sort of like, you know, if we're going to say these are probably both valid, how do we, how do we then work with that assumption? Right. And that's sort of where I'm at. Today. Right. Well, and one of the things that
0: but you're actually doing is you're actually studying Indian astrology in order to understand how the sidereal zodiac has been used in that context in the process. And that is something that Glenn didn't do because he thinks Indian <laughs> astrology is, is dumb because he thinks traditional astrology is dumb. And he doesn't have any qualms about attacking those traditions
2: before studying them basically uh, is the recurring theme. Yeah. Well, and if you're going to, you know, go, go to the bother of critiquing something, you need to get to know it very well. Right. Theoretically, that. Yeah. Well, it's almost like the, you know, the bad attacks on astrology where they're like, the zodiac's changed, y'all. We're like, yes, we know we're using the tropical zodiac. Like, that's not a critique or they, that's
0: they proceed assuming that astrologers aren't aware of procession or don't know what they're doing.
2: Right. And, you know, in India, the Indian astrology, they, they do know about precession. This isn't like a truth bomb that anyone has dropped. <laughs> it's in right. very old texts where they're just like, "We're not using that. This is a thing. This is the yearly zodiac. We're doing. You know, we're using a different tool for this job." So, right. Well,
0: or even you know, skeptics commonly allege that astrologers don't know about precession, even though there's been so many famous astronomers down through history that use the tropical zodiac. And we're very aware of procession from Ptolemy to Kepler to you know Galileo or what have you. Right.
2: Galileo didn't know about procession.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, somebody in the in our live audience of patrons just gave the link to the transcript of Glenn's talk, but I actually would not recommend reading the transcript because he tried to promote the transcript early on when the controversy first erupted. And everybody on Facebook started hearing all these complaints that he'd given this really offensive lecture in India. And so one of his strategies was to release a transcript right at the start, but the transcript's actually misleading because he actually had a bunch of subtle things, including a bunch of images in his slides that you actually need to see in the video in order to understand the true effect of the talk. So I would would not recommend actually just watching the transcript. Uh, One of the slides, actually, the very first diagram he used in the talk when he first starts explaining the difference between the sidereal and tropical zodiacs was actually an image that he ripped off from an article that I wrote on my website. So that was actually an interesting- um, That would
1: have really annoyed you to see.
0: Yeah, especially given my history with him and him writing that attack on traditional astrology 10 years ago and me writing a long response to it where I pointed out all of the mistakes that demonstrated that he hadn't studied traditional astrology before attacking it. So I've actually done a follow-up for this talk now that I watched it and I recorded a 2-hour commentary discussion analysis of his uh lecture last night and I'm trying to decide whether to release it right now. So if I decide to do so, I'll do so sometime in the next few days. So that may or may not be an episode of the podcast coming up soon and then we can I'm sure that'll lead to further discussions. Totally. All right. So let's move on. Um Oh yeah, the only other piece of news is that the Regulus award voting just closed today, actually. So I don't know if you guys do you get ballots, are you guys
2: members of those orgs? Um I think so.
1: I, I believe I
2: believe I am. I, I've been kind of out of it. I mean, I was I've been geographically out of it, and the previous two months were one long work bender. So I might have ignored those emails in favor of more pressing matters. Yes. All
1: right. Austin and I were talking about how insane the Mars-Jupiter and Scorpio combo was for both of us work-wise. Uh, yeah, I just voted the other week because I'm actually a member of two different orgs, so I got to vote twice, but I just voted for the same people twice. I don't know if that's legal or not. I didn't really think it was I don't know, maybe it's not, but I figured I was, no, it, it was... I paid two memberships, so I should have two votes.
0: Yeah, I think so... that's how it's supposed to work is if you have multiple memberships, you end up getting a vote for each organization who separately Yeah,
1: because I got ESAR and AFAN. I voted through because I'm members of both of those organizations. And that's just my joiner mentality, which I learn a lot about when I discuss with Austin <laughs> and his Mars. I always feel like you're so Mars sometimes. And yeah. all your analogies are like two boxes in the ring, and all my analogies are like, when I'm in the kitchen baking, <laughs> and it's just so different.
2: Right. To be fair, uh, Kate and I binged uh, all four seasons of the Great British Baking Show last <gasps> month. And and uh, in my consultations for the following weeks, every one of my analogies was about baking, in Great British baking. In fact,
0: Austin, I'm
1: thrilled. I, I wish I was a fly on the wall to hear you <laughs> with your baking analogies. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we Chris was asking us about the Regulus awards, and our tangents are clearly on fire today. So yes, I did vote. There were some good categories. I saw, Chris, that you were nominated, Ooh, and yeah. I won't I won't discuss whether I voted for you or not, because voting is private.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I was actually nominated for a Regulus Award in the- Which the- is
1: huge. You must be like the youngest person ever. So, for people who might not know, these are like the astrological Oscars, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the biggest award that we basically have in the astrological community because it's put together on behalf of all- three or four of the major astrological organizations in the US. So it doesn't really get bigger than that. So I was nominated in the category of the for theory and understanding of astrology. Although it's funny is like the other nominees were Benjamin Dykes, you know, who's done two million translations of, you know, medieval astral ancient astrological texts, uh, James Holden, who's written this standard you know, books on the history of astrology, as well as translated several dozen ancient astrological texts. Deborah Holding, who has the you know the most popular and extensive website on traditional astrology uh, on the internet, and then Adam Gainsburg, who's done some amazing work on observational astronomy and things like the Venus and Mars cycles. So the competition was actually pretty tough. And that I that
1: was actually like I think one of the categories that had the most high quality candidates in it.
0: Yeah, and I feel felt bad, and I'm actually only mentioning it now on the podcast now that voting is over because I didn't want to influence it or game it unduly, because I actually feel almost bad that I'm going up against Ben and Holding and Holden, and I would almost feel bad if like I won the award instead of like James Holden or Benjamin Dykes or Deborah Holding on some level.
1: Well,
2: yeah. that's that's what we like about you, Chris. You have integrity.
1: Yes.
0: Sure. So anyway, it'll be interesting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Whatever. Um, So weirdly, though, I did notice that in my transits, that transiting Jupiter is exactly conjoining to the minute, my natal Mercury today. And it's kind of weird that the voting is closing at the same time. So I don't know. We'll see how that pans out.
1: Oh, oh, and actually what Jupiter is doing in your natal chart. I know other people who've won awards under that kind of a
2: Well, and Jupiter is basically going to station in that degree.
1: Correct. Right. Yeah. It's there now for like a month.
0: Sure. So that's actually a good segue then into the point of our discussion today, which is
2: the. That was
1: a very smooth segue.
2: Right. But uh, also, the moon is exactly trying that Jupiter. Right now. While we're talking, like within two minutes of Arc.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it just closed and they're just, they're literally just counting up the votes today. So it's actually interesting because I've never paid attention to something like that where it's a vote process where you know the results aren't going to. Come out until months later, but technically today the vote has closed and therefore all of the votes that will get in are now officially being counted as of today. So it's sort of an interesting astrological thing to think about in terms of like the vote closing and potentially people who win the awards having transits that day that they don't find out about until, you know, months later. But we'll see what happens. Um, all right, so let's make a transition then into talking about the forecast for March. So we're we're already at March, so what is today? It's February 26, 2018. I'm going to go ahead and share the chart for the moment just for, so that those who are following uh, the video version of this can kind of see the lineup of planets that we're looking at right now. But where should we start in terms of the astrological forecast for March? Or what do you guys think is sort of important that, that we should start with? Should we just start at the top of the month?
2: The full it's, moon is, on the 1st, right? Yeah,
1: there's a full moon. Very easy place to start for this month.
2: Very easy And place, this is going to okay. be
1: a month where, you know, there's going to be a blue moon. And I've already started people to tell people, please don't ask me about
2: this.
0: Oh, yeah, that guy, that's your guys' most hated uh, thing is the concept
2: of the, the blue moon. It, yeah. It's, um, it's, I, it, it's in the book of grudges. I don't yeah. know if it's at the <laughs> it top. It might not
1: be at the top, but it's definitely in the book. <laughs> definitely. So because we have a full moon about every 29 days, so there's sometimes where the calendar months correspond and we just have two per calendar month, and March is one of those months.
0: Okay. So... So we've yeah, got a full moon,
1: full moon on
0: the 1st, fr- full moon on the 1st in Virgo and then a full moon on the very last day of the month in Libra basically. Yeah. Got it. Yes. Okay. So starting well, Go ahead Austin.
2: I was just going to say one introductory comment about March this year is uh many of you probably heard the old saying like in, li- in like a lion out like a lamb referring to the weather in March um, this year it's in like a lamb and out like a lion. Um, (laughs) things, things, things get steadily less chill as the, as the month progresses, although they start, um, pretty chill.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. My one sentence summary for March is it's a month in two parts. Absolutely. So there is the first half of March and then there is the second half of March and it's, they're very different.
0: What's the major, just to give us a preview, what's the major distinction?
1: the Well, I think it's the shift of um, primarily Mars into Capricorn on the 17th, I think, if I've got that date right, um, mid-month. And then uh, we also have a Mercury retrograde start at the end of the month. Uh, we've got so much Pisces energy at the start of the month. We're all in the pool and we're happy because the sun is shining. But then we get the segue with Mercury and Venus going into Aries. But it's it's primarily the Mars split that I think really changes the vibe. Um, yeah, e- and then, e- yeah.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, oh, everything yeah. everything goes from water and Jupiter to fire and Mars.
1: Fire, Mars, and Saturn. Right.
0: right. That makes a lot of sense. We have everything in Pisces, and then very quickly all those inner planets start shifting into Aries. And at the same time, we get Mars not just shifting into Capricorn, but going into Capricorn where it meets up with Saturn pretty soon after and starts getting ready to turn retrograde before too long later in the year as well.
2: Yeah. Well, and we just have um it's uh Mars's ingress into Capricorn, which puts it into a two month co presence with Saturn and Pluto, is quite significant, but it is made all the more significant because uh shortly after Mars's ingress, the sun moves into Mars ruled Aries, Venus is already in Mars ruled Aries, and Mercury stations retrograde in Mars ruled Aries. So a lot of planets are answering to Mars at the same time as Mars is closing in on a rather gnarly conjunction with Saturn. Wow. Yeah. Uh that is pretty striking.
1: Yes. And that conjunction technically becomes exact early in April, but we're going to be feeling it through those last sort of 10 or 12 days of March just you know as soon as Mars gets into Capricorn basically.
2: And we can contrast that very meaningfully with the with the beginning of the month which has the sun, mercury, Venus, and Neptune in Jupiter-ruled Pisces. Right. So that's what we're at right now and what we're coming out of. And
0: so we have at the top of the month, like you guys said, uh, starting with that full Moon in Virgo. So the full Moon takes place at 11 degrees of Virgo. And uh, the closest aspect that it's actually tied into is uh, the Moon being opposite to Neptune at 13 degrees of Pisces and the Sun conjunct Neptune at 13 degrees of Pisces. So is that the main signature. It looks like that's one of the main signatures aside from a pretty nice looking trine between Venus and Mercury at about 22-23 Pisces with Jupiter at 23 Scorpio. So this is the the contrast that you guys were talking about in terms of the sort of ease of the beginning of the month versus some of the more Martian and other hard aspects later in the month. Absolutely. Definitely. Okay. Um, and that's actually brings me to the election because when Lisa was looking for auspicious electional charts this month, um, she was actually having kind of a hard time, but she found one at the very beginning of the month that we wanted to highlight for this month because I think basically she picked up on the same thing that you guys did, which is basically that the first month part of the month looks a lot easier than the second part of the month. And therefore, the best electional chart that we wanted to highlight uh actually takes place right away on March first so here is the uh chart for that on the screen so the chart is set for so the charts set for uh march first two thousand eighteen uh starting at the the election is set for six forty nine p m uh, in Denver, Colorado, or whatever your location is, basically, uh, you can set it for local time. And oh, you don't, perfect! Yeah, you don't have to convert it. So, what you want to do is set the chart so that a, approximately 23 degrees of Virgo is rising in your area, whatever city you live in, in the, on the Earth on March 1st of 2018, and then you'll get approximately the same chart as what we have here. So interestingly I mean this is basically the same full moon chart that we were talking about at least here in Denver it takes place just after or shortly after the full moon and the point of this election primarily was to take advantage of that uh Mercury Venus Jupiter trine that we were talking about just a second ago which is so auspicious right at the start of the month around the time of the full moon and to make sure that the Moon itself is partially applying to those aspects. So the Moon is in the first whole sign house at 11 degrees of Virgo, and it's applying uh, somewhat widely to the uh, sextile with Jupiter at 23 degrees of Scorpio, and then eventually the opposition with Venus and Mercury at 22, 23 degrees of Pisces. So the other thing about this election is that it has Virgo rising with Mercury ruling the Ascendant, and it's placed in Pisces in the 7th whole sign house, which is not amazing in terms of zodiacal strength. But what it is very good for is Mercury is applying next to a trine, a very close trine with Jupiter at 23 degrees of Scorpio with reception, which then um, heightens or, or strengthens the connection between Mercury and Jupiter. And then after Mercury completes that trine with Jupiter, it then moves on to uh, attempt to form a conjunction with Venus. So, yeah. so one of the important things about this chart is you need to make sure it's a night chart. So this is set so that it takes place shortly after sunrise, but it's actually very crucial that you make sure that the Sun has already set and it's well below the horizon by the time you do this election. So that's why we set the Ascendant at 23 degrees of Virgo. Uh, By making it a night chart, you neutralize Mars, which is otherwise angular in the fourth whole sign house down in Sagittarius. But as long as you ensure that it's a night chart, that should not be a major uh, problematic factor because Mercury is separating from the square with Mars and then applying to the trine with Jupiter. Uh, And Mars in a night chart is not as problematic as it would be in a day chart. And additionally, putting uh, making a night chart also makes Venus a bit more positive as well, which in this chart is angular and is set to be very prominent in the 7th whole sign house right on the degree of the descendant. So basically, if you look at the visual astronomy on the day that you do this election, what will happen is that you'll do the election shortly after sunset, and right at that time, all the stars will come out, and you'll see Venus uh, setting uh, on the horizon so Venus will set as a little twinkling star shortly after the sun does and at the same time the full moon will be rising over the eastern horizon over the ascendant at that time so you're basically taking a lot of the most positive things of that full moon at the very start of the month on March first and then using it as an electional chart uh so yeah that's that's the election for march what do you what do you guys think
1: um, I think the best, one of the best things happening this March is the Venus Jupiter trine. So getting that in is juicy. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think that's nice. There's there's a lot to work with under that configuration. I could see for specific purposes. I, I think the Virgo rising is fine, but I could see for specific purposes turning the wheel a little bit if you wanted to really focus on one particular house because there's a lot of benefic happening yes. there and so you could if you're proficient i think you could get a couple different elections that night out of it if again you know depending if, if you really wanted to focus on sort of a single house election rather than a general election but yeah it's juicy and you know mercury mercury is in trouble in pisces in it's fall but it is uh, dignified by both benefics simultaneously um which is a a pretty nice thing <laughs> that's you know that's as much help as a planet can get so
0: yeah it's one of those instances where it's like you have that standard statement that everybody learns when they first learn traditional astrology and first learn the dignity system that some planets uh do better or more auspiciously placed in some signs and they're less auspiciously placed in other signs but there's always that proviso that there can be major mitigating factors that can allow the planets to still function pretty effectively and pretty auspiciously in those signs as long as you have certain things present. And for the most part, this has such significant offsetting factors that I don't think it's a major issue using Mercury in Pisces as the ruler of the Ascendant because it has such a strong relationship with Jupiter uh, and Venus. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the election for March. Uh, Lisa found a few other electional charts. They're actually kind of tough to find good elections this month, especially in the second half of the month, but she found three others. And we're going to talk about those uh, charts on the the Auspicious Elections podcast, which we're going to release in the next few days for patrons on the $5 and $10 tiers through our page on Patreon. So you can check that out for more information. All right, so that's the beginning of the month. We're still basically just talking about, uh, literally, just talking about the first of the month at this point. Um, so, what's the next thing that we should talk about, or what should we move on to from here?
1: Uh, let's well, well, and we've ta- think we- talked about the Venus Jupiter trine, which is nice, Austin.
2: I was to say we didn't really characterize the the full, moon the full moon in and of itself. We talked about how it anchors uh, some good elections but um i think it's worth a minute to just say okay we've got a full moon in virgo opposite all these things in pisces um i see that as a an opportunity and perhaps the necessity for balancing out if you've got if you let things get a little how should we say a little pisces sloppy then um that you know that full moon in virgo is very helpful for kind of just maintaining minimal order making sure that yes that's wonderful you're having a good time but you know let's remember to pick up after ourselves and remember that you know the um the bills are still due even if you're kind of <laughs> relaxing and enjoying yourself it's you know sort of a useful counterpoint to what is mm, somewhat excessive Pisces at the beginning of the month
0: right yeah definitely yes. I mean, everything does seem to lead back to both Pisces and Neptune as being like the dominant signatures, it seems like, for this full Moon, which is weird because even though it's a Virgo full Moon, it's like the ruler of Virgo-Mercury is in Pisces trining Jupiter and conjoining Venus and, and separating from a conjunction with Neptune. And the next aspect that the Moon makes immediately after leaving the opposition with the Sun is that opposition with Neptune itself. And that was actually one of Lisa's major reservations about using that election or highlighting it this month was the fact that the moon before before it makes it to the benefics to Jupiter and Venus, it hits Neptune, and that question of you know would you use something or or when do you um, go ahead and do something when you know you're going to run into a bit of a Neptunian barrier, and what does a Neptunian barrier look like in some instances where you have to get through that in order to get to the other side? Hmm.
2: I yeah. I would probably avoid using this for something that is excruciatingly mercurial. Right. If if the primary if the the primary nature of the act is just like requires uh, precision, speed, analysis. Um, if that is the most important thing, all of which are mercurial qualities, I would maybe maybe not. Nah. Um but right, if you're if, like if, ed-
0: editing a book or like writing computer code or something like that.
2: Right, but if, if there's um you know if it's any less exacting than that, it should be just fine. I just wouldn't put the uh the mercurial uh, again yeah, I would just if it's if it's excruciating mercurial then I wouldn't use this, but it's good for a lot of other things.
1: Yeah, I oh, sorry ahead. go Austin.
2: I was just going to say and just because something has a mercurial component doesn't mean it's primarily mercurial, right? Um, you know, for example, writing poetry involves writing, um, but in uh, poetry is uh, much more than simply mercurial. It's really primarily venusian. And so that would be fine. You know, if you are writing um writings, if you were doing something that requires imagination, right? And, you know, and perspective and artistry, then this is perfect for that. But if you're writing, yeah, again I think computer code is a good example of maybe not. Uh Chris as well as, you know, if you're doing your taxes. This isn't the best doing your taxes election.
0: Right. Yeah. And and that's a really important distinction for elections that people sometimes get caught up on is is that you really need to figure out what what is the underlying essence of what you're actually trying to do or what's actually involved here rather than sometimes people get distracted about some other part that's involved and, and mistake that as like the, the main emphasis.
2: Yeah. Like it, with this one, I would say lead with Venus. This, is, this would be best for Venusian elections and sufficient for a number of others.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it just strikes me it, that with the rulers of the first and the seventh also kind of applying that this would be really good for a relationship romantic type um, election. Uh, or night. if you- yeah, date night for sure. If you're if you're writing something creative, uh, but I do like the the energy of the Virgo Moon just creating that polarity with the Piscean energy. If nothing else, it's like let's just focus for a couple of days and maybe achieve a couple of points that will help feed the Piscean dream, but will be substantial or tangible, or there'll be some sort of productive output here. Uh, so I think that's a nice counteract counterpoint. To, I mean, the Virgo moon is always a nice counterpoint to Piscean energy, but this year we've got an excess of Piscean energy while that Virgo moon happens, which we don't always have.
0: Right. And that's such a, and it's such a, it, it becomes more stark or more clear or will become more clear what that is and how it's different once we get to like the second half of the month where everything's suddenly in like Aries and Capricorn and you get much more of a hard edge. And that sort of the nebulousness and the the sort of romance of Pisces is, is kind of over at that point.
1: Go on. So if you're enjoying it, enjoy it while it lasts. Because I think it's actually around the 6th of March that Mercury and Venus do move in. Um, Mercury goes first, I think, and then Venus follows into Aries.
2: Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah, but I, I would just say, so we've got the Virgo full moon on the 1st, the moon is still in Virgo on the 2nd. Um, on the third and fourth, we, we have a Libra moon, a Venus ruled Libra moon. And during that time, we have a sun conjunct Neptune and Pisces and Mercury conjunct Venus and Pisces. So it's almost like the, that, you know, the, that hyper Pisces Venusian period extends right up until the end of the, of the, the Libra moon, which follows the, the virgo moon and then mercury and venus both bail on pisces and enter into aries beginning the the shift into the more fiery and mars ruled um portion of the month but at that point it's it's somewhat balanced right we've got some fire we've got some water It's not. um, It's not as lopsided as the very beginning of the month, which is lopsided towards water, or the end of the month, which is very hot and dry. Earth and air, Mars, Mars, Mars. Yes. Right. So that's our next major
0: astronomical movement. Is March sixth on this? Basically, on the same day, we get this. Not quite simultaneous, but at least on the same day or within the same twenty-four hour period. Ingress of Mercury and then Venus into
2: Aries. Yeah. And it's worth noting that Mercury and Venus are right next to each other for the entirety of the month, more or less. That is interesting because uh, Mercury is actually getting it's ready to, to slow down to station retrograde. Yeah. They'll both be, they should both be visible for just a little bit after sunset together.
1: Yes. I mean, that is one of the astronomical shifts coming into March too, isn't it? That Venus starts to become visible again after being hidden for quite some time.
2: Right. And they're both getting, they're both actually getting further and further from the sun. So they'll be getting more and more visible um, for most of the month until Mercury pauses for its retrograde station and then begins to drop back beneath the horizon.
1: Yes. And Venus will carry on. Further, But Venus is moving relatively quickly right now, so she can keep pace with Mercury.
2: Uh, And Mercury is slowing down. He's slowing down.
1: So they're more, yeah, they're running together. Um, But I think the shift, so Mercury and Venus, I always think of planets moving out of Pisces and into Aries. It's like they start to dry out. So the, the inspiration or the feeling or the intuition or the creativity that starts to subside. And once we get into Aries, of course, we're more about taking action. There's more of a decisive quality, um, not necessarily saying that Mercury going into shadow is super decisive, but there are a few days there, uh, when Mercury just gets into Aries before it hits, what will be the start of the technical shadow point. So there's a little bit of like, okay, make those decisions, you know, start putting plans into action. We want some movement. We're no longer dreaming. We've got our shoes on and we're we're heading out, getting things done.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, when I think of the uh the, the Pisces Aries cusp, I always think of that that evolutionary scene where the like the the fish with bony fins kind of like clomps up onto land <laughs> <laughs> I guess you remember that's that a from, great
1: image, yeah. From,
2: from science class. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the way it happened, but I remember that image. And it's it's sort of awkward at first, but give it a million years, right? Yeah. And yes. uh and that, that fish will grow horns.
1: <laughs> but that but it's a nice concept, like because the the expression of that planet evolves as it changes signs. So
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the flip side is wherever Aries is in your chart, you've now got the presence of Mercury and Venus before we get to head up with what Mars is doing. So a little bit of a...
2: Just a bit about... um, And so technically we have two Mercury-Venus conjunctions this month. Um, We have one in Pisces and we have one in Aries. Yes. And uh, I personally like Mercury-Venus conjunctions quite a bit. Uh, I find the writing comes much easier... And also often the speaking, you know, yes. the um, um, whatever, you know, and, and in this particular one, Venus is the stronger of the two while they're in Pisces. And then Mercury's uh, Mercury's a little bit more fit in Aries as Venus tends to find Aries mm, a little bit irritating. There's some chafing with the martial nature of Aries with Venus there. It's the traditional detriment, um, but the, the two are good for, you know, I don't know, as uh, uh, polishing your silver tongue, or you know, doing some doing some nice writing doesn't have to be uh, absurdly poetic, but you know, something where a little bit of an aesthetic edge um, is appropriate. One of the examples
0: I I always like to use, and that I used in my book, is that the poet uh, T. S. Eliot has a, a Venus Mercury conjunction right on the degree of his ascendant in Libra, or or had a Venus Mercury conjunction right on the degree of his ascendant in Libra. I thought it was a good you know, metaphor for that and the, the sort of poetry that comes along with Venus and Mercury that you're talking
2: about here. Yeah, I believe that Clive Barker um, also has a Mercury-Venus conjunction in Libra, although I think we're not so sure about his um, uh, his birth time. But he's even though he's a horror writer, he has a, a very luxurious and poetic style of prose. Mm. And
1: I think that's the key thing here with Mercury-Venus in aspect is that it it adds that magnetic sweet, I want more quality of Venus to the Mercury, which is the words or the prose, whether it's written or spoken. Because I do find the same thing, Austin, Mercury-Venus, the conjunction or the sextile can be great. I mean, it's a lovely signature in a natal chart for that artistry or that way with words or that creative crafting component And I hadn't quite pulled it together the way you are sharing here that Mercury and Venus are going to basically skip along together for this month, which just makes that energy available to all of us.
2: Yeah. Oh, so one thing that just occurred to me, just from the reverse point of view, not what Mercury or not what Venus offers to Mercury, but what Mercury offers to Venus. Mercury offers um, a technical perspective to artistic Venus. That's and beautiful. I,
0: I, yeah. I,
2: I, my, um, I was just thinking about this because um Kate, my wife, um, has been uh, working on learning piano and my dad was telling my dad's learning a new style of guitar. And I was like, oh that's the technical um, those are the technical requirements you need to install and internalize before you can, you know, make the beautiful music.
1: That's a really good point. And the same with writing, that you have to know how to put sentences together or how to use words before you can create a piece of writing that is pleasing to read or pleasing to hear.
2: Yeah. So yeah. So both sides, right? So if somebody somebody wants to, you know, if you wanted to start um, learning an instrument or you want to get back to learning an instrument, a Mercury-Venus conjunction election would be a great time to do that because that's about the union of those two principles. Sure. So we've
0: got it looks like the first Mercury Venus conjunction occurs around uh March third, and that one's interesting because Mercury is moving faster than Venus and Mercury overtakes Venus at about twenty-six degrees of uh twenty-six, twenty-seven degrees of Pisces, and then that's around March third, March fourth, and then later in the month they both go into Aries, and then Mercury starts slowing down while Venus is still uh speeding up and Venus actually ends up catching up to Mercury and overtakes Mercury. Uh it looks like that takes place what? About March nineteenth, March twentieth at about sixteen sixteen yeah, about degrees 16. of Aries.
1: Yeah, because Mercury's just in station then and Venus hotfoots it over Mercury.
0: Okay, right. So that's actually the stationary the the degree that Mercury stations at is sixteen degrees by about March twenty second, March twenty-third, but Venus is already conjoined Venus basically in that degree back around the the 19th?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Interesting. All right. And and, I mean, that's an, an interesting in and of itself just in terms of there probably being more of an interpretive difference where obviously that comes up very clearly in horary astrology where it matters which planet is applying to which planet or which planet's receiving the aspect of which planet. But it's interesting thinking about you know, when you read in just like the cookbook astrological discussions, it just gives one delineation for Mercury conjunct Venus. But what is the interpretive distinction between Mercury conjunct Venus where Mercury applies to and conjoins and overtakes Venus versus what happens when Venus actually applies to and overtakes Mercury?
2: Yeah, well, and and also um, in if we're looking at it from a more horary perspective, you have the two coming together separating and then coming back together yeah right so um if you're looking at a horary chart and you're like ah mercury is separating from venus not really like that's the space in between two conjunctions so they're they're it's actually applying while it's separating
0: right because if, if it was like a relationship horary and it's like will these two people get back together or will x and y individuals reconcile, and you saw them separating, it might indicate coming back together, then separating, and then coming back together again, or something like that in terms of it describing symbolically a sequence of events.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Interesting. All right. Well, so that's right at the beginning of the month, and we're focusing mainly so far on, on Mercury and Venus, but pretty soon after that, another relatively major astronomical event takes place pretty early in the like the first week of the month which is jupiter stationing retrograde in scorpio at, at 23 degrees of that sign right around march 28th march 29th right mhm all right so this is our first station it's now been a few months it's been several months at this point since jupiter ingressed into scorpio last fall and now we have uh jupiter Slowing down and turning retrograde at that point, and it will stay retrograde for the next few months after this.
2: Yeah. Well, Jupiter's cycle is just about cut into thirds. You know, we have the conjunction with the sun, which occurred last November, and then, well, no, last late October. And then you got about four months, and then Jupiter stations retrograde, and it'll be retrograde for a little under four months. Then it stations direct, and then you got about four months until the next Sun Jupiter conjunction. So the middle third of Jupiter's cycle is always retrograde, and um, I, I think care. Uh, I think it might be worth it to just point out for what's for me the millionth time that Jupiter's uh, retrograde and direct periods are n- uh, are not analogous to those of Mercury or Venus um mercury and venus the interior planets um in some ways reverse their significations when they're retrograde a, a retrograde venus will actively uh, create dispute and strife in an area whereas in mercury instead of creating mercury when retrograde instead of creating clarity will actually will actively fog things up jupiter as the planet of coherence and opportunity um, does not become an indicator of incoherence and calamity when it's retrograde. Um, you don't have a reversal, you don't have that um, blatant reversal of significations with Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Um, their retrogrades are, are different and occur much more regularly. Um, and so I wanted to point that out. It is that retrograde phase is different in quality, but it's not. It, it doesn't turn a benefic into a malefic. Kelly, how do you look at the at Jupiter's retrograde phase?
1: Yeah, look. The, I think the phase is interesting to note, but I agree with you. It, it's something you sort of say to students all the time. Like a, a Jupiter retrograde or a Saturn retrograde does not have the qualitative difference necessarily that a Mercury or a Venus retrograde also because you know saturn and jupiter are retrograde a much more substantial portion of their time so other than the station points themselves which i think are perhaps the more significant that sort of pausing and holding and emphasizing that comes out of those station degree periods you know mercury can be effective when when sorry not mercury jupiter i beg your pardon can be effective when retrograde um it's, it's the station degrees, I think, where we get some of that significance and that shift. So the station period. So I always like to look at, you know, that four or five week period, you know, right around when Jupiter is just at 23 degrees um, in this instance, which is not just March. I think Jupiter hit um, 23 in late Feb, Um And, you know, basically from late Feb to the end of March, Jupiter is just at 22 or 23 Scorpio. So I don't, you know, I don't have that worry that some people do. Oh my God, Jupiter's retrograde, the sky is falling. It's just, it's just going backwards. Like you get a chance to reemphasize, focus on the house that it's triggering in your natal chart or any planets that it might be directly activating.
2: Yeah. I, what I often see with the transition from Jupiter direct to retrograde is that Jupiter direct after it comes off of that um, conjunction with the sun? Um, often introduces opportunities either for exterior growth or interior growth or education. And then when it hits the retrograde phase, you're looking at, mm, how should we say, making good on the opportunities that have introduced themselves or, you know, getting through um, the tougher parts of. Uh, you know, of a, of a, of a, of a program to educate yourself or to to take in new material. And it's a little Jupiter retrograde tends to be a little bit more complicated. Um, and how should we say progress tends to be a little more cur- curvy or crooked, a little bit less linear. Um, but it's not, uh, it doesn't, it, it's still a road to Jupiterian, um, a, a road to Jupiterian things. It's not like a road to ruin uh it no. doesn't become the road to saturn for example.
1: No, it just re- it does require more of you perhaps. There's there's a particularly jupiter and scorpio i think it's such a you know you've really got to either to dig deep or to do the work or to um you know make sure there's substance in there essentially. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I liked what you said Austin about the different type of focus of the jupiter conjunctions with the sun based on whether it was direct or retrograde. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Nice
2: stuff.
0: Yeah, and and that idea also I like that you brought up Austin. You know, one of the things that it is similar to where it does import something that's similar formally from like the retrograde cycles of Mercury and Venus that we see is sometimes something happening at the start like when the planet stations retrograde or an av- an attempt being made to do something or the initial effort to do something. That isn't brought to completion and then is later revisited in some way uh, later on in the year when Jupiter eventually returns back to that degree that it's stationed retrograde at. Um, that's something I see, I have seen, uh, especially common with Saturn and Saturn's retrograde degrees and then returning back to those degrees because it's really just going back over, returning to and re emphasizing something that was already like a note that was already struck earlier. Mm -hmm. But with Jupiter, I think you you can see similar themes sometimes, and that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. But it's just important for people to pay attention to if they do have something sensitive uh, that that specific degree is hitting of twenty three Scorpio. That any events that take place around the time of that station could end up having broader, uh, long term impact than you might anticipate at the time and you may find yourself revisiting it again later in the year when Jupiter returns back to that degree one more time.
2: Yeah, totally. And I would just like to add that when we're looking at Jupiter transits, um because Jupiter is a benefic, um you know, it is the greater benefic. Um we, a lot of times we're dealing we're not dealing quite as much with stuff that just happens to you. Um the both of the benefics, but Jupiter in particular um, often have a more volitional or voluntary quality. Um, you know, if we think about Jupiterian figures uh, or people who exemplify Jupiter, it, they're often successful at what they try to do. Um, we can imagine circumstances like winning the lottery where good happens to you. But um, as a default, generally good is what you create, you are successful in what you intended. And then the bad is stuff that happens to you. And I notice sometimes when I'm talking to people about Jupiter transits, they're like, well, nothing good happened to me at that Mm -hmm. time. Whereas Saturn is very easy because Saturn very often happens to you, (laughs) uh, rather than you being the Saturn that happens. Um, And that Again, you know, we're talking about growth or education, all these Jupiterian significations. These are things that you do. And it's nice when the world cooperates with you. And that's part of what Jupiter transits are about. Um, but it's, you know, Jupiter's uh, hermetic lot is the, the lot of victory. Mm. And victor- victory cannot simply happen to you. You have to try to win, right? And then victory is what happens when you succeed at winning.
1: Well, and I think that's, that brings up a quote, you know, Jupiter people are often described as lucky or you're having a Jupiter transit and you're supposed to be someone who's blessed by luck, but then there's this explanation that being lucky is sort of, you know, luck is what happens where um opportunity meets effort or preparation. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree with you, Austin, and I love how we're sort of basically sort of fleshing out the idea of what a Jupiter transit is because, you know, it, it's about there's, a, there's an opportunity to collaborate, or there's an opportunity to get things done where there's more support or more help or more on offer to you at this time. Um, but it is a good point to keep in mind that if you have a planet, you know, around that 22 or 23 degree marker of Jupiter, you know, there's three hits to that Jupiter transit and it won't complete um, until the final aspect later in the year. So there's there's a lot in there. But yeah, it's a good reminder too about the lot associated with Jupiter is about victory. But victory doesn't happen to people who stayed at home watching TV. Victory is for people who got out there and gave it a shot. And actually, oh my God, I have a really funny story about this. You know, the Winter Olympics are happening right now. Yeah. And Australia is a really summery country. And so I'm always getting questions like, do the Australians put a team in at the Olympic, at the Winter Olympics? And I'm like, look, we do. Australians are very good at like things like, snowboarding and the half pipe like the aerial types of stuff but then I always throw out but you know Australia's won a gold medal in the speed skating too and people look at me like I've got three heads like Kelly you're having a Piscean fit of fantasy here this cannot be possible and like no no we really did and it's this is the idea of the luck opportunity preparation all coming together it was Maybe 10 years ago, this the um athlete is named Steve Bradbury, and it's this the short track speed skating. He's coming last. There's five people he but he has made it to the final. That's what I said. That's his effort, is he got himself into the final. And one of the Chinese guys trips the US guy, and the first four people on the last lap, they are coming around the last bend. Oh, they right. all stack it and Steve Bradbury so far behind of them all keeps his feet and gets over the line first and he gets the gold medal and the person who gets the silver and the bronze they actually cross the finish line on their ass because they haven't got up from falling over so that's an op- that's a great example of this idea of you know yes he got lucky but he did the hard work to get there so
2: there's well, he little... didn't wait at home and wait for the gold medal p- to be delivered to his door.
1: He did not. Absolutely. He went to training every day for probably four years, like everyone else did. And he just slogged it away. So, yeah, that's, that's a good example of what you're saying, Austin, I think, where, you know, you've got to do the work. Um, you, you can't, you've got to be in it to win it, basically. And right. that's, that's true. People sometimes think with a Jupiter transit, but it didn't happen. Like, but what did you do about it?
0: Well, and it's that. And also, it's like goods are experienced in a way that's more subtle than bad things. And that's very true. That's one of the really tough things astrologically, especially when like talking with a client. Or that was always one of my biggest frustrations talking with clients is that people readily recognize challenges and hardships and difficulties in their life because they're very easy to identify and to you know just just see but positive things people often take for granted or they don't stand out as much in our minds and so sometimes in that way jupiter transits can be much more subtle than people are expecting or sometimes like it comes and it happens and like something positive happens but it's not like you know it's not like the most overtly positive just like amazing transformative thing possible and so people
2: just kind of shrug and they're like, oh, okay, I guess that's that's good. And yeah. Yeah, well, well yeah. And just kind of circling back to the original point, um, you don't need to participate at all in having something terrible happen to you, right? Like you can just be in a car accident
1: mm-hmm. and
2: that that's enough. You don't need to like work on that, <laughs> whereas to uh, experience success, you had to have um, you had to have picked something and put effort toward it. You know, Saturn doesn't need your help, right? <laughs> Mars Mars doesn't need your help to enact its significations. Whereas with with Jupiter, it's it's you know you you kind of have to participate. Unless we're looking at the extremely rare you know lotto win, and even then you have to buy the ticket. Um, you know, it's not like somebody will. Even if, like let's say we have you have somebody has Jupiter in the second for a year. Um, or, you know, it's transiting the second for a year. It's not that like, that will probably be a better year for money, but it doesn't mean that people will drop off bags of money in front of your door regularly. <laughs> no, year. It means that your efforts will meet with greater success than whatever your baseline level is. All right.
1: Yeah, the, you can get a bigger bonus this year than you might normally, but you may equally be working harder for it.
0: Or one of the things that's funny is I was talking to somebody recently about they had like a, a a Jupiter transit and it was really positive in their natal chart, but it was in their fifth house, and both of their children had really good fortunate things happen at that time. And the person was like, "Oh, okay, well it's good. It's something good in my chart that's showing up in my chart, but it's actually happening in their life, and it's not that positive for me." Or I've seen people do that with like seventh house transits and something really positive happens to their their partner.
1: That I've seen that so often Jupiter in the fifth and uh, that I start including it now in my standard interpretation, Jupiter in the fifth, something good can happen to you around fifth house stuff, or one of your children is going to get an amazing opportunity and the other area of the other house area, I've seen it show up a lot that I now included in my interpretation, Jupiter in the eighth house, your partner gets a financial windfall or bonus of some kind, mm-hmm. basically. So you don't get the benefit, but your partner's rolling in it for whatever reason, which I mean, it should be a benefit, I guess, too. You
2: know, that's really funny because, um so I have Jupiter in my fifth this year, Scorpio is my fifth. And I don't have any children, but I actually didn't connect this until just now. Um, a, a good friend of mine has four children. Um, uh, the fourth just arrived in December. And I've been like really into his kids. I'm like, oh, you know, how are they doing? Da, 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 blah, blah, blah. You know, that three-year-old is just so adorable. Like to the point that I'm annoying Kate. Um, right. And I hadn't connected that like, oh, Jupiter's in your fifth house, dummy like yeah. you know of course you're you're like extra jupiterian around kids right
0: that's one of the really difficult things in terms of researching astrology though is like the person it may be happening the, the chart may be showing something that's happening like tangentially in somebody else's life that they're connected with and you know if you're researching that are is the native aware of that or are they going to report it accurately in terms of what happened in that time or if you say Something, ha- something positive happened in the sphere of children or in the sphere of relationships during this time frame, and they report saying, "No, I don't recall anything happening objectively in my life at that time, but it was actually happening like in the life of their partner or their children or something. It's a frustrating It can be a frustrating issue or a challenge in terms of researching astrology.:
2: Yeah, well, and it's, uh, it reemphasizes what astrology is actually designed to show you, which is the life. It's your life. It's not just you. In a, you know, to a certain degree, you are one of the 12 houses. And then there's the rest of your life, right? Um, you know, it, 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 um, I think people probably partially because of the culture and partially because of certain styles of astrology want everything to be happening to them rather than to be happening within the container of their life. There's a difference between identifying with just the me part of my life versus this is my life as a whole. Right. Does that make sense?
1: Totally. Totally. Okay. Yeah. That it can be happening that you're experiencing it as a secondary. Like you said, Austin, you and Kate, it's not like you're having a child this year or you're looking after your own children. But Jupiter in the fifth house, there are more young children in your life in general, and you're more – you're learning about – because I always think, yeah, with Jupiter you learn. You're learning about the routines of young kids and how they work and, you know, all of that stuff.
2: Yeah, and I'm more interested in being a benefic towards them rather than be like, yeah, those are my friend's kids. That's fine. Let's go hang out. No, no, no. You want to,
1: like, you want to take the kids out. You want to buy the kids treats. You're like, oh, my God, this kid would like this toy or whatever. Well,
2: let's not go crazy. Okay. (laughs) I'll play video games with them.
1: There you go. That's a good thing.
2: Make make sure no one dies. You know, while mom and dad run to the store.
1: Correct. Yeah. And honestly, like I'm, it's funny. I'm learning about children a lot because my brothers now got two kids, and, and my sister's got one on the way. One of my sisters got one on the way. And uh, honestly, when you've got a couple like my brother and his partner, just just being there and saying I'll I'll play with these kids, so you don't have to worry about them for a couple of hours is like the best gift of all. Um, Anyway, this could be the Jupiter Transits podcast, Chris.
0: Yeah, I know. That's It's basically turning into that. That and the other people, stuff happening in other people's life and showing up in your chart podcast. Well,
1: and it is, I mean, this month, to, to bring it back to our stated topic, this is a Jupiter station month. So whatever Jupiter and Scorpio is doing for all of us, we're getting a bit of a punctuation or an emphasis around that this month.
2: Yeah. yeah and like, as I just experienced, maybe... The station will serve to point out what Jupiter has been doing since October. Definitely, because right? because what I just described a pattern that has been consistent over those months, but I hadn't connected to Jupiter's time in Scorpio. I yeah. was just like, oh, fifth house, I'm going to be really creative and stuff.
0: Yeah, that's really important because that's especially for these outer planets. The stations act as an, an intensification and like an exclamation mark behind whatever that transit is about, especially for individuals. And so, it's something that perhaps has been building up already or happening, at least in the background, ever since Jupiter ingressed into Scorpio months ago. But for many people, especially if you have natal placements close to that degree or, or those degrees, this station, uh, because of the effect of it having a sort of intensification by sitting on the same degree for so long, oftentimes will bring those themes more to the forefront and will make them more clear at that time. So, and we'll get two of those stations. So, we'll get one station at 23 Scorpio, where Jupiter stations retrograde here, uh, you know, in March, and then we'll get a retrograde station, which will happen. When does that happen? Or no, it's July. Stations direct.
1: direct July at 13 Scorpio.
0: 13 Scorpio, and then eventually, to sort of close up the point that I made earlier, Jupiter Jupiter will eventually return back to 23 Scorpio for the final time in October. And yes. so that's the notion of it of it returning back to ground that it's already walked on. And so sometimes you may see a connection between some events that happened here in March around the time of the retrograde station at 23 Scorpio and then Jupiter returning back to that degree for the final time in October. So yeah, pay attention to what happens. All right, so that brings us back to this month and back to what happens after the Jupiter station in Scorpio, which takes place around March 8th, 8th, March 9th. It looks like the next major thing is actually the next lunation, which is a a new moon in Pisces, right?
1: Uh, What's the date of that? Yeah, that's around the time, I think. um, I get the right Google doc. Pisces, new moon. Yeah. And the Mars ingress, because I'm like, those two things are big, but they are happening on the same day.
2: Yeah, things- uh in short things really start changing quite quickly once we get into the second half of the month yeah so this is second half of the month and it basically gets
0: started i mean this really the new moon does act as the the dividing point i think in the month so the new moon takes place at 27 degrees of pisces on march 17th and at the time of the new moon mars is like literally at the very last degree and minute of Sagittarius it's at 2959 Sagittarius and then uh just a little bit later like within an hour or two of the new moon Mars makes its ingress
2: into Capricorn and and the moon the 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 very new moon squares Mars um in Capricorn only a few hours after that new moon so we get introduced um to yes. Mars in Capricorn immediately and it's the moon it's the moon just a few hours after the the new moon in late pisces ingressing into aries into mars ruled aries and then making a square with mars just barely into capricorn and of course the square is mars's aspect so we're introduced to that actor quite thoroughly quite early
1: yes so we could expect maybe as much as it is a pisces new moon Even I have to kind of get into the warrior camp here with the Mars, the moon Mars square. There's some frustration or there's some tension or there's an irritation or an annoyance. And I think it's kind of going to draw our attention to what we need to do over the next two months with Mars in Capricorn, because Mars will be slowing down for its own retrograde by the time it gets to the end of its journey through Capricorn. But the other thing that Mars in Capricorn serves to do is tie into the longer trend of Saturn in Capricorn. And so it is really this sort of, there is, I, I don't know if heavy is the right word, but there is this sense of needing to knuckle down or to get on with things or to do some, you know, reorganizing of of expectations and deadlines and boundaries so that things are more realistic because we've got to get on with what we've got to do and we've got to stay on target.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And if we take a second to contrast Mars in Sagittarius and Mars in Capricorn, um, as we discussed last month, Mars in Sagittarius is Mars in a Jupiter-ruled sign. It has a lot to do with enthusiasm and reason and meaning for action, whereas Capricorn is an Earth sign, and it's the Earth sign where Mars is most comfortable. It's exalted there. And so with Capricorn, it's more like, well, I don't care how you feel about it or whether you're enthusiastic or not. These things need to get done. Are you going to take care of these problems or not? I don't, you know, it doesn't matter, especially with Saturn, right? Saturn's like, I don't care if you're excited about it. Yeah. I don't care if it's meaningful. It needs to get done.
1: Yes. Perfect. So it's that idea of the contrast, Austin, I guess, around the responsibilities and the due diligence and that you've made this commitment and it doesn't matter if you've now changed your mind. You've either got to honor that commitment or you've got to have a hard conversation about what Ooh, you're that's not a, going yeah, to yeah, do yeah. That. That's
2: a good way to put it in terms of what you've bound yourself to, what commitments you've made. All right. And also what requirements your life has, right? Like everybody's going to have to pay tax or everyone in America is supposed to pay taxes while Mars is in <laughs> Capricorn this year.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Right. And so that, that idea of like rules and laws seems to be like a really frequent theme with, uh, Capricorn.
2: Yeah. Saturn and I, there's been a lot of, um, one thing that was interesting to watch since we did our Saturn and Capricorn, uh, discussion was uh how many people have been convicted of various things like the the law and order and being on the wrong side of the law theme that we saw historically and anticipated this time definitely definitely already in effect um so I guess one of the uh, one of the big themes for the second half of March to sort of uh, put a tent over it is the contrast between Mars, Saturn, Pluto in Capricorn, an earthy matter of fact Capricorn and, um, the Mercury, Venus, and very soon the sun in Mars ruled Aries because Aries is Mars ruled, but it has a very different quality than, than Capricorn. Right. Kelly, how do you see the the contrast between Capricorn and Aries and how do you, how would you approach trying to navigate that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good distinction to make, Austin. And I think, you know, when when we think about, you know, Mars being in rulership in Aries versus being exalted in Capricorn, we do get a more productive version of Mars in Capricorn. And I think the Capricorn versus, you know, I think on the cardinal side, like Aries is just so reactive. It's it's what I call reactive responsive. It's doing before it's thought or planned or considered the consequences thereof. Whereas Capricorn is almost the complete opposite. There is no acting and no doing until we have fully assessed and done this due diligence kind of report on the long-term consequences or impact. So I I do think it's an interesting tug, if you like, and, and being a square aspect, there is that friction between what you want to do now or that immediate urge that you want to satisfy versus that desire to stay focused on something that has a longer time frame or needs more of that consistent measured output. And that I think is going to be something that we're all dealing with to a certain extent in this second half of March, even, and, and heading into April because that Aries sort of um, Aries Capricorn face-off, if you like, um, is really dominant um, for that Aries season or Aries month.
2: Yeah, it, it persists well into April. Totally. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that there's, um, how should we say an acute danger of recognizing all of the things that need to be done? Oh, I should have done this earlier. All this Mars, Saturn, and Capricorn stuff. And then going into full Aries adrenalization mode, um, to try to get it all done. But that's not the Saturn pace. And so that, that means burnout. Because we've basically got a month of this Capricorn Aries tension, and you can't you can't keep it at eleven for a full month. And so like you were I think you were alluding to pacing mm. is gonna be a real challenge here. Um, you know, this is this is not this might feel at certain moments like um I don't know, like a like a fire drill or uh, like a sprint, but this is actually going this is much more of a marathon. Or at least a, a 10k.
1: <laughs> you know what it feels like. I used to run track or do athletics in high school. It feels like the damn 400 meter sprint. Which, if you've ever done sprinting, 400 meters is hard. You know, 100 meters, 200 meters, you just go full tilt for the. But 400 meters, you're you're at the edge of your ability to go full tilt. And this is why it's such a specialized race, because the distance, its, it's you're really at your, your lactic acid kind of level there. So it feels like, yeah, how do we maintain a pace that we can sustain for a longer period, knowing that we can't just do the 100 meters dash down the, down the street here? And I think, Austin, you, you summarized it perfectly when you said, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think one of the problems with the late March and then into April period, if you try and approach it like a sprint, you will burn yourself out. You will be exhausted. Um, You know, by the time we get to the Aries full moon, which we must put the chart of that up before we finish today, because that Aries full moon basically ties in to the Mars-Saturn conjunction. Like there's a big sort of T-square pattern that comes in. Um, And that happens over the very last weekend in March, um, which is also the Easter weekend. And I just think you know, you're going to get a reality check probably around pacing. I know even for me, I'm thinking about my schedule at that point in time and I'm going to be working on a big project that I've got to stick with consistently and, you know, to rein yourself in um, so that you don't burn out um, I think I, is key.
2: Yeah, I think that I like your um, your 400-meter analogy better than the the marathon or 10K because I think that's right. I think that there will, like, it's not the the proper pace will not be a jog but no. it also won't be full tilt the whole time.
1: No, but it's it's like it's just off full tilt, isn't it? And yeah. you, but you've got to be able to sustain it. That's the key. And and if you've ever run track four hundred meters, you you're just so exhausted to try and find that sweet spot between running fast enough to stay in the race without peaking too soon.
0: Love so it. So anyway, Perfect. There's,
1: definitely. There's been no wars or baking yet, but we're on on the track. Um,
0: so as you said, Kelly. So. You know, jumping forward because that lunation is one of the last big things that happens, but there there are a couple of things between then. So yes. the first is the sun, of course, makes its annual ingress into Aries on March twentieth. So the sun catches up with Mercury and Venus and Uranus, which are already in that sign, and then shortly after that, Mercury stations retrograde at sixteen degrees of Aries by about March twenty second, March twenty third. So basically Mercury retrograde for the next little while for the next couple of weeks uh or that's the start of a Mercury retrograde towards the end of March here and then yeah pretty much that lunation uh Venus eventually departs from Aries and ingresses into Taurus about March around March 30th, March 31st and then at that point on March 31st we also get the full moon at 10 degrees of of Libra uh, which is that lunation that you were just talking about, Kelly, which ends up creating a T-square with uh, Mars and Saturn, which are at about seven, eight degrees of Capricorn at that time, squaring the Sun and Moon, which complete their opposition at 10 degrees of Libra in Aries.
1: Yeah. it's. I mean, I think it's always interesting when we do get a full Moon nearer to a solstice or an equinox anyway, and then this, there is, you know, I was looking at this. I'm like, oh, Libra full moon, you know, and I'm getting all excited. It's full by Venus in Taurus. And then I look at the chart a little bit more and I was like, ah, shit. You know, oh, the Mars Saturn. Sorry to be a little bit crude to our listeners. But I was like that Mars Saturn interference, you know, foul play there at the free shot line or something. It, it There's aggravation. It's a full moon anyway. And now it's a full moon. You know we've got the sun conjunct retrograde Mercury, and they're square to Mars and Saturn. So there's frustration. This is you run into the brick wall, basically. I think. What do you, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this too, though.
0: Yeah, brick brick wall is a good metaphor because at this point Mars is still applying, and now it's it's almost about a degree away from hitting that complete conjunction with Saturn. Which really, when you think about Mars and the kind of like boundless energy and, and enthusiasm associated with that archetype, and you think of it applying and moving towards and then running into saturn that idea of like running into a wall or or a, a really hard boundary or barrier uh is a really good analogy
2: yeah and mars when mars and saturn are conjoined they they often indicate difficulties um you know for individuals and collectives uh sometimes it's just being having a lot to do but being very tired but you know, it's also worth considering what house that conjunction and co-presence is occurring in in your chart. I was actually having a discussion yesterday with my top tier Patreon people and we were talking about this. And I, I, I had two, I think, worthwhile things to say about working with that or preparing for that period of co-presence and certainly the conjunction, the exact conjunction itself, most of all and one is the the proactive um art of if you're going to have if if the story that wants to be told during this period is a Mars Saturn and Capricorn story pick your ordeal in in which you're going to experience that rather than waiting for the ordeal to come to you right so you know instead of trying to take it easy and having a rotten time pick something hard that's worth doing yes and then so that's the volitional side and then the other side of it is we know that Mars Saturn conjunctions often pop out unpleasant events, and so you know on a very simple level, look at that house and during the the Jupiterian half of uh, March, consider consider how you might um, safeguard that area of your life or be prepared to deal with a little something if that is your sixth house, which is the house of uh, primary house of health concerns. Right. Well, you know, maybe, um, come into that in better shape and taking care of yourself so that if your health is challenged, you're in a place to, uh, you're in a place to absorb that. Or if it's your second house, which is money, maybe, you know, don't go into that period having blown all your money on an expensive purchase, right? Come in with a little, as much padding as you can muster, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, and that's that's not a like freak out and stare at those days waiting for doom to arrive, but it's you know it's just like be sensible right if you know that um there's a greater likelihood that there will be difficulties in this area, don't leave that area unattended and vulnerable, and also do your best to pick your trial rather than have your your trial pick you,
1: which like, is actually sorry, go Chris
2: I just like that statement to freak out and wait for that'
0: that's like a good. Motto or like title for an astrology book or something.
2: Well, and it's something that I think we all worked through at various points in time, and then I think is inevitable to. It's an inevitable part of learning how to incorporate astrology into your life um, is once you get a sense of when good things might happen and bad things might happen to you. There's a tendency to stare at those dates and wait for it to land on you. Right. Um, and that, you know, if you're going to use astrology, you need to be able to put it in context and incorporate it without, uh, without, without creating a giant stress ball. Cause that stress ball in and of itself is not going to help you.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's something I still struggle with. And I actually have a question of that. I'm not entirely sure that that's something that any astrologer ever fully gets over or gets around. And on some level, the, Practice almost naturally lends itself to, and so it's more of like an ongoing process that all astrologers work through and and have to wrestle with on some level. I mean, do you feel like that you ever fully transcend that completely
2: austin like if you're if you're talking like really honestly um well, okay, so I'm certainly worried by far, far, far less than when I first realized astrology was real. Sure. That's a pan that's a panic moment, right? Um, but w- what I, I would agree that there, there's an ongoing process almost like hygiene or digestion um with the astrology that you can look at, like seeing that, you know, those two year that two year period is not going to be the high point of my life. <laughs> In fact, that might be the hardest of this decade, right? But there is, this is actually uh, very much um, the method of the Stoics, which is to work through it ahead of time. Say, okay, if this is going to happen, if if this happens, instead of just being like, oh my God, it can't happen, it's way too awful. Instead, put yourself there and get used to it, right? This is the, the, there's a, there are, there are a series, some Buddhist schools uh, advise people to contemplate the various ways, that the body can die ahead of time because it's going to die. The body's going to die, and so getting acquainted with the fact that these might happen to you um, takes it out of that panicked and immediate response. It doesn't mean you have to love it, um, but there's a level of accept. There's a level of of uh, working through things ahead of time, which allows you to be more calm and centered in the moment. And this is also uh, this was part of Napoleon's military genius. Um, he did not plan, uh, he did not expect everything to go as planned, but he would sit, he would sit there in his tent at night and he would work through all of the problems that could happen. What if, you know, what if the cavalry doesn't swing around in time? What if the cannons are jammed? And he'd think, okay, well, what am I going to do at that point? Right. Because, and then, and so when he came to those inevitable moments of chaos, he'd already, Thought through them was like okay, I have these options at these at this point, rather than being emotionally attached to things going perfectly, and so um, you know our lives are less chaotic than those of a 19th century general, um, but we can still apply that. You know, if you're afraid of something, sit with it for a while. And, And there are, of course, situations that are terrible, but most of what we're afraid of is actually not that bad when it happens it doesn't end the world right because we have an emotional response which is oh my god you know that's that can't possibly happen that'll shatter everything but these things happen and they don't and um you have to sit with things a little bit in order to get through the panic All
0: right yeah, and I and I understand that that's the, that was actually the original purpose for astrology. It's one of the things I noted in my book that literally the only philosophical statement that all the astrologers agreed on, at least in the Greco-Roman period, was this very stoic idea that the purpose of astrology is to get used to the things that you have to accept about the future so that you can come to terms with them and not be extremely depressed when they happen or extremely overjoyed when they happen or what have you, but you develop a certain amount of balance and, and sort of equilibrium that you can approach all events in your life with. That being said, that's like the ideal if you're like a enlightened stoic sage. but like in reality in, in a practical like working sense, one of the I don't want to say a pitfall because I don't want to frame it too negatively, but things about astrology and working with it, especially as we do is in a more predictive forms of astrology, Is that the astrologer? There's always still a certain amount of uncertainty about precisely how a specific and a certain amount of like wiggle room for how a specific transit or time lord period or whatever is going to manifest itself in terms of the specifics. And as the astrologer, one of the tricky things is that you've seen already and you know the full spectrum of like worst case scenario and like best case scenario. And you don't always exactly know precisely where it's going to fall on that spectrum. And that uncertainty in and of itself can sometimes be troubling. And I've seen that and sort of almost sat and thought about and like meditated on that uncertainty and the things that it raises in one's mind as you're thinking about it in anticipation and the extent to which that's helpful or not helpful or how astrologers sort of deal with that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that sitting if you know, sitting with it, if you find yourself um if you find yourself dwelling upon and worrying about a transit or needing it to be amazing, um you know, set your timer on your phone for 10 minutes, sit down and then only let yourself think about that for that 10 minutes and sort of unknot that and take it apart and think about you know the 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 best versus worst case for that transit and work on you know just being ready for that small fan of possibilities and that's part of why I brought up the the Napoleon example, because he wasn't trying to predict the one thing that could happen. He was looking at the fan of possibilities and putting himself in all of those places and getting comfortable ahead of time in all of those places. And so, I, 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 Kelly, I wanted to ask you, mm. um, because I, I feel like I sort of had to develop this because of writing sometimes a whole year ahead of time and getting freaked out about something that's going to happen in nine months or getting excited about something that's going to happen in five months. Um, And I I feel like spending that much time writing ahead kind of makes you do that because you've already, you, you can't unsee it. Right. Do do you, how, what, how do you, how do you deal with this?
1: Totally. I mean, I think I look so many thoughts you you definitely get that insight. You know, I think for us, Austin, we we write a lot about it. I mean, I'm just about to start writing 2019 horoscopes. So I'm kind of like in my mind, a part of me is almost like I'm done with 2018. Not that I'm done with it, I've got to live through many of the days left, but I'm already starting to explore the landscape, the celestial landscape for next year. And I think that exploration, which is what every astrologer does, however you're out however you output that insight is that you, you get a sense of, oh, there's a bit of a cautionary period here, or this period looks a little bit more uplifting. And I think maybe it's just embracing or touching that slightly stoic perspective that every year has some cautionary periods and every year has some high point periods. And knowing when they are is great. I mean, you can't always anticipate what you're going to do. Like, I know for me, what's happened with my... Um, horoscope writing project, the deadline is a month earlier than normal, which basically means that the hard, heavy writing is just going to happen over this Mars-Saturn conjunction in the, the two weeks either side. Now, I knew that the Mars-Saturn period was coming and I'm like, you know, I'm going to, there's going to be some hard work. There's going to be, you know, giving up some short-term things, Mars stuff, so that I can do the long-term things, Saturn stuff. But I couldn't have said exactly the circumstances because I only found out about that deadline, which was changed by a production department in a magazine that I have nothing to do with. Um, and I found out about that a few weeks ago in my kind of yearly check-in call. And they're like, Oh, by the way, you know, the deadline is the middle of April, not the middle of May. And I was like, good times, good times.
2: Thanks. Uh, right. Thanks.
1: But, but I make the adjustments. Like as you said, Austin, what I think what you're alluding to with the Napoleon is he's got contingency plans. He's thought about. A, B, and C options or worst case scenarios. What if this thing goes wrong? How will I handle it? What if this thing goes wrong? Um, And ultimately, it's like you've got to stay your eyes on the final prize. Like for me, it's to get the magazine delivered on time. What do I have to change or restructure in the timeframe leading up to that to make that happen? And there are certain things that I might have wanted to do personally, like go away with my husband for my anniversary. That's not happening until after the deadline, you know, and that's just the, the realistic choices. And I think a Mars Saturn aspect like this, don't be afraid of making some of those tough choices. Like be practical, be honest with yourself. This is how much time or energy you've got. Realistically, can you do all of those things or can you do one or two things to a really high standard? And I think that's also one way we can approach this with with a with a view to being productive in mind
0: definitely so I love that and and that's yeah. a really good point. I mean things are rarely like the worst case scenario uh in fact, it's often just a much more moderate sort of like mild annoyance that you need to get through, like in your case with having that deadline moved up a month and therefore having to put other things aside that you'd rather be doing and just just work through it and it's gonna be hard and it's gonna be take a lot of energy and effort but it's like you'll get through to the other side eventually
1: totally and you you i think that's just and and that's a mindset though and every person based on the the natural themes in your chart is either open to doing the hard work and making the changes or resist them to start with because some people's personalities with certain placements or chart configurations are like no i don't want to do it on this time frame and you know you can dig your heels in and then two weeks of that time frame is gone and you still got to make up whatever you've got to make up. So totally, yeah.
0: Sure. All right. Well, I think this is actually bringing us to the end of this episode as I think we've run out of days of March and astrological alignments to talk about. Um, are there any major ones that we're totally overlooking or that we forgot to mention for the later part of March?
2: I don't believe so. I have one more thing to say just about that full Moon in Libra. Mm-hmm. So that the full moon in Libra highlights the Mars and Saturn, but it also highlights venus 's ingress into Taurus, where very, Venus is very strong because the Libra Moon is ruled by that Venus and so to jump back to kelly 's um, uh, four hundred meter dash um, <laughs> I think maybe this is an eight this is two four hundred meters, and that like the moment to pause and reassess and maybe catch your breath is the full moon. Right. Cause the full moon, the, the sun and the moon, the left and the right eyes are, are staring right at Mars and Saturn. Right. So it's not that the race is over, but there is this Venusian ingress and that is the ruler of the moon. You so can't like,
1: forget that because that is the best thing at the end of March.
2: And it's not, cause it's not a, it's not a, this begins a period of leisure. It's that you might need to make yourself, um, do a little bit of leisure in order to complete the second re- leg of the race. Right. So and this so we- if
1: yeah, this is the the track, you're at the track meet, you've done your heats of your eight hundred meter four hundred meter dash and your four hundred meter race, and now you're gonna back up for the final because you made it through, but the turnaround to the final is maybe not as long as you would like, but you've still got a bit of time to rehydrate or get a massage in between.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Logged well, that metaphor to death.
0: And <laughs> and the ingress is also just the glimmer of hope at the end of the tunnel because like the Mars-Saturn conjunction is so close. To being complete at that point, and it eventually does complete in early April, and then not too long after that, Venus will then catch up to those same degrees from Taurus and sort of trine Saturn in Capricorn, and then trine Mars in Capricorn. And and as the those two planets are separating from that conjunction, and so there's a sense of like easing things down, or the tensions t- starting to dissipate to some extent after that point. Exactly. All right, good times. Well, uh, I think then that that's it for for March. So that has been our, our monthly forecast for March. And we will have to check in again in a month uh, to, I guess, then talk about April.
1: And you yeah. know what? I'm sure when we actually record this, the Mars-Saturn thing will probably be building.
0: <laughs> All right. yeah, our next so-
1: record will be in that time.
0: All right. Yeah, so- it'll have to be. Yeah. So everything we just said will all be like culminating at that time for the next recording. Well, good. I mean, then we'll hopefully have something to to talk about for another 2 hours like this episode has been. Yeah, definitely.
1: I don't think we're in any danger of running out of things to talk about.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so Kelly, do you have anything coming up this month? Are you doing anything? You
1: know what? I I don't have any special events because oh I, I'm going to Norwac. I'm I'm doing the Norwac conference. That's I'm not doing any other teaching this month. Um,
0: That's in yeah. March.
1: Yeah, the Norwac conference is two months early this year to accommodate UAC. So it will be the weekend, basically the twenty third to the twenty fifth of March in Seattle. So if anyone is going to be in the neighborhood, come on down.
2: Awesome. And what Austin- about you, Austin? You got any classes um, or anything? Yeah, I have um I have two webinars that I'm doing this month. Um one of them is on Saturn and Capricorn and it's it's uh I believe I titled it The Grimoire of the Grumpy Goat: Magical <laughs> Approaches to Saturn and Capricorn. Um and so that's going to be a combination of remedial approaches to saturn and capricorn as well as active magical approaches we'll be looking at some recipes from the picatrix and we'll also be looking at certain planetary remediation strategies from geotish for you know the, you know actively working with saturn and capricorn and then i'm also doing a webinar on uh, the astrology of generations. And this is something that I know all three of us are interested in or and aware of. But, um, you know, I, I just keep seeing these kind of terrible articles about millennials and Gen Xers and all of that. And astrology has, um, if we use the outer planets, particularly Pluto, we have a very elegant system for looking at generations and generational qualities. And so i have been meaning to write it up for. Literally four years, and I figured I just I just uh, have a webinar and talk about it and explain it. Like here's astrology's take on that. It's pretty it's pretty elegant, and it fits. It actually fits things um, better than a lot of the the discussions that I hear online. And then not this month, but beginning in April, I'm beginning another eight month eight month round of the fundamentals of astrology. So that's my, my zero to 60 class, zero to 60 in eight months. The acceleration is not intense, but, uh, <laughs> that's because it's a process. You know, you don't learn astrology in one cool webinar. You don't no. obtain proficiency. You can learn about astrology in a cool webinar. Um, but to become proficient, it takes a while. So that I'll be gearing up for that to begin in April and in, in enrollment is open.
0: Brilliant. And people can find out more information about that on your website, which is austincopic.com, right? Yep.
1: I forgot one thing. Um, <laughs> I'm doing a free talk at the AYA on Wednesday night about how to set up your business as an astrologer.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That would Very be nice. a great talk. And that is that a free talk or donation? It's free,
1: yeah, through their, their, you know, their Wednesday night drinks thing. Um, so, I think it, just find the AYA on Facebook. Basically.
0: Right. Or their website is like youngastrologers.org, I believe. I believe so.
1: You guys will be able to tell us good.
0: (laughs) All right. We we should know, right? I
1: was just thinking, I should know. (laughs)
0: Just do do a Google search for the Association for Young Astrologers and you'll find their website. And there you'll find the link to Kelly's free webinar on that, which would be great for everyone to attend if you have even a passing interest in pursuing astrology professionally or doing consultations at some point.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about how to set rates for consoles, if you're doing writing gigs, how to price it, you know, so just a few ideas about the business side of it, which is so critical to getting started. So yeah.
0: Definitely. And as for me, the only thing I have is I'll be back to doing the podcast next month. And I recently released, I meant to mention, a webinar that I just did that's two and a half hours long on Zodiac releasing from the lot of Eros and how to use that technique in order to divide up your entire life into chapters and paragraphs with respect to relationships uh, and specifically to identify different periods that are uh, auspicious for relationships and in which relationships are more likely to happen, including major transitions in your love life. So it's a pretty cool technique. And I'm glad that I finally got a chance to do an up-to-date webinar on it because it's been one of my main timing techniques that I've developed over the past decade. Nice.
1: Excellent. I caught right. a little bit of that live, and I'm looking forward to the recording. So thank you for all your hard work.
0: Awesome, cool. And I'll put a link to that in the description page on the Astrology Podcast website. And otherwise, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks to our live audience of patrons who attended. Uh, I appreciate it, and you got to see some of the behind the scenes stuff as we dealt with technical issues, which I'm sure was fun. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, if you, uh, if you, as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please. Uh, and you're listening to it on itunes please go to itunes and give us a good rating since it will help other people to find it Uh, if you're interested in supporting the podcast then please consider becoming a patron on our page on patreon and otherwise yeah we'll see you again next month so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time
2: Bye. bye